0: Thanks, Evan, and good morning to all of you who are here in person and on the lawn and to everybody that is streaming at home. Uh, Our 9 a.m. stream kind of glitched, and so we are now streaming this 1045 service, and so glad for those who are are joining via stream as well. Uh, Did want to say welcome back to many college students who are kind of coming back in from being home for the holidays. I know uh, the semester begins this next week, so there's still people coming back, but if that's you, we're glad you're here. Uh, We love being near the universities. Uh, We love being close to North Carolina Central and Duke and UNC Chapel Hill and Durham Tech and not too far from NC State. So if you're a college student connected to the campus in any way, we're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome. Uh, And let me also say, if you are newer to Christ Central, if you are a new guest here. Uh, We would love to connect with you further. Let us know that you're here uh, and we'd love to to hopefully welcome you. Uh, We are in the second week of a three-week series uh, on the vision of our church that we began. This began last week. The name of this sermon series is the name of our two-year vision initiative, Become. This initiative, Is an initiative that is helping us increasingly become a church of mercy and justice, a church that starts new churches, a church that raises up leaders, and then a church that has a permanent home in the heart of our our city, all so that we can seek the glory of God and the good and flourishing of this city that he's called us to. You can learn more about Become if you're here in person. Uh, We have materials that you can take Home, or if you're online, go to our homepage. Click the Become tab. All everything is uploaded there for you to check out. uh, What we're praying for and hoping for uh, in this initiative. Uh, Our vision here at Christ Central, that has been since our inception, is to seek the glory of God and the good of Durham. Our mission, which it's sometimes hard to distinguish, what is the vision? What's the mission? How are they different? The mission is how we accomplish the vision. What we pray God will do. And our mission here at Christ Central is to ask God to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. Spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. Last week, I preached on Ezra, uh, out of Ezra, on spiritual renewal, uh, that we pray that God would transform our lives by his grace, that we keep first things first, which is God's grace transforming us into worshipers of him. This morning, I'm gonna preach out of Nehemiah on social renewal which we define as seeking mercy and justice for individuals and systems. And the next week, Timothy will preach out of Esther on cultural renewal. So let me give you a little bit of a quick context of where we are in our Bible here this morning. It's a refresher if you were with us last week. If, if not, uh, as I said last week, this portion of our Bible is new to many of us. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. It was written uh, originally as one book, not two like we have in our Bibles. One book, Ezra Nehemiah, written roughly around 500 B.C. Uh, The pagan empire of Babylon invaded Jerusalem uh, around 588, 586 B.C., destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, destroyed the city itself, took most of the Israelites captive, not all of them, some remained in Jerusalem, but took most Israelites captive for around 70 years. And Ezra Nehemiah starts with us reading about the Persian Empire having now overtaken the Babylonians. Ezra chapter 1 begins with saying that God stirred the heart of the pagan king of Persia to release the Israelites from captivity and allowing them to return to Jerusalem. I said this last week, but that is a whole sermon of itself. It speaks to what Evan prayed for and what's going on this week in our country to think about how God stirred the heart of a pagan king, a non-believing king, to accomplish his purposes and to fulfill his promises to his people. Ezra and Nehemiah, you should really read it. They're not, they're not long books. But Ezra and Nehemiah are two great leaders that God raises up to lead post-exilic Israel into the rebuilding and the restoration of a new Israel and a new Jerusalem. They are great urban developers I mean, Ezra leads with the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah leads with the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of the city. In Nehemiah chapters 1 through 4, we really get uh, an insight into how great of a leader Nehemiah is as he leads in the rebuilding of the walls. And you see Nehemiah really create buy-in from the Israelites and ownership so that the walls are rebuilt in a matter of months. And then we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, our passage this morning. And there is a major problem in Israel as they are living behind their new walls. The question in post-exilic Israel with these rebuilt walls, what will the new Israel be? Not in its urban development, but as a new society. And so I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand and we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm going to read God's word to us this morning. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us right now. Holy Spirit, speak to our spirits. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are soft. Let's walk out of this place having been renewed by your love, by your grace, transformed so that we might live as a people, as a new society, as a city on a hill, shining the goodness of Christ and his kingdom to this place that you've called us to live. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. want you to try to imagine with me. Imagine yourself in an extremely desperate financial situation. When all the circumstances just kind of converge and bring you to a point where you really have no other option, but to dig yourself into a deeper financial hole, to incur more debt, or to even lead you to act in ways that you normally would not just to survive a financial desperate situation. For some of you, that's not hard to imagine because you've been in the situation. You've been in that place or maybe you're even in it right now. For a good number of you, I'd say it's hard to imagine because you've always had the resources to get yourself out of a desperate financial situation. I want you to let that settle for just a little bit. The reality is that society has always had haves and have-nots. And if you are a have-not, it's not that difficult to imagine the scenario I just posed. If you are a have, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to feel it. It, I would just venture to say that at times it's hard to be empathetic towards it. But Nehemiah chapter 5, there is a perfect storm of circumstances that has led many Israelites into desperation. They've just returned from exile. Many of their properties were plundered when they were taken into captivity. They've not been farming their land for produce or income since arriving back from or into Jerusalem from captivity because they've been all hands on deck rebuilding the walls of the city. And on top of that, a great famine has struck the land. These Israelites are not guilty of being lazy or negligent. They, like many today, have incurred a perfect storm that has led them into desperation. I mean, look at the situation of these differing Israelites in Nehemiah 5. Verse two, there were Israelites who were just in sheer poverty, trying to eat and keep alive. Verse three, there were some Israelites who had to mortgage their fields, vineyards, and houses just to get grain. Verse 4, there were Israelites who had to borrow money to pay taxes to the king. They had to go into debt to pay debt. Verse 5, there were some who had to force their children into indentured servitude, selling their sons and daughters into slavery. Now, <coughs> excuse me, as a result of this situation, verse 1 tells us that there was a great outcry. There's this great outcry of the people. The Hebrew word for outcry has the connotation of being crushed. People are being crushed. And and note that this situation was not people out there causing the crushing or causing the oppression. Verse 1 tells us that the outcry was against their Jewish brothers. The crushing. And the oppression was brother against brother, sister against sister, family against family. This new Israel was coming out of exile, and they might have had new structures, a new wall, new gates, a new temple. But as a society, they were not giving everyone their due. Verse 5 tells us that there were those who had the power, and they were crushing those who did not have power. Listen I am extremely thankful for this church that we're worshiping in this morning, this building God's provided for us in the midst of a pandemic. It is a huge gift that I'm, I can't look forward to as much uh, for the next 15 years. I get so excited thinking about us being rooted in the heart of the city. And I'm grateful for how God's providing in other ways. So he's enabling us to stay on the mission that he's called us to. But if we Christ Central have a new building we have new structures, if we start new churches, if we raise up new leaders, but we are a society that remains deaf to the cries of injustice. If we are a society that does not act with all of our abilities, all of our power, and all of our resources to bring justice where there is injustice, we are missing the aim of God's kingdom. We need many Nehemiahs who are listening and who will respond To the outcry of injustice. So, this is the situation that we see in Nehemiah 5. There's two things I want to highlight in our passage. The first is the personal response to injustice seen in Nehemiah, verses 6 to 8. And secondly, the corporate call for justice in verses 9 through 13. Let's look first at the personal response to injustice. In verse 6, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry. Anger is a rightful response to injustice. God gets angry when he sees the oppression of his people. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. God gets angry at injustice. In the Gospels, we see Jesus coming into the temple in Jerusalem, and he's drop-kicking tables and clearing out the temple in anger. Because people were exploiting others and using the temple to gain money. Righteous anger is the appropriate response in the face of injustice. Now let me try to define righteous anger. These are my words. Righteous anger is Godward passion. Godward passion that leads us to fight for God's causes. We need not just Nehemiah's who hear and respond, but passionate for God's glory, who are willing to fight for God's causes, for the oppressed, for those experiencing injustice. Now keep going with me. Verse 7, see this personal response that Nehemiah is having. He doesn't just knee-jerk, kind of respond in this anger. Verse 7 says, he took counsel with himself. I think Nehemiah wanted to make sure that his anger was righteous. There's not a lot of commentary on on this verse, but I kind of imagine Nehemiah angry, passionate for those who are being oppressed. He's wanting to make sure he's he's in step with God. And so he opens up God's word. He prays, he breathes, he thinks about what needs to happen. He asks God for wisdom and humility, boldness, faith. And then verse 7. He steps out and he brings charges against the nobles and the officials. And he says, you are exacting interest each from his brother. Do you catch what Nehemiah is doing? Nehemiah goes straight to the top of the structures of society. He speaks to the nobles and the officials. Because Nehemiah knows this is not just a personal issue, but a systemic issue. And I wish I had time to go into all of the systemic issues of injustice that our society has levied in the past and that are still present today. I'll just name a few. In our country, you have to start with slavery. And then you move on to a woman's right to vote. And then you have Jim Crow laws and predatory lending that's still very much in existence today. Sin's not just personal, sin corrupts systems. And our response, our personal response to injustice must be to speak for people, but also to speak into systems. How is God calling you to personally respond to injustice? You cannot respond to everything. But I do know that God wants you to hear the cries of injustice. And he wants you to respond to something that he has gifted you for. And he has called you to. Here's the second thing I want us to look at. The corporate call to fight for justice. Nehemiah, verse 7, chapter 5. He calls for this assembly. He speaks to the nobles and the officials. And he calls out the injustice. Verse 9. The thing that you're doing is not good. He calls it out. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Now, we are for sure living in a call-out culture today. We've talked about that here at Christ Central. Everybody today wants to call out somebody, right? Or call out anybody that's against them. And this call-out culture, it's, it's rooted in a self-righteousness that pervades within all of our hearts, right? We want to tell everybody why they're wrong and why we're right. And our, therefore, our culture is filled with what's been called virtue signaling, Man, we're, all, we're all good at virtue signaling these days. You know what I'm talking about? You put, you put that, that sandwich board, or not a sandwich board, that, that sign in your yard to let your neighbors know what you're for, what you're against, or that bumper sticker that's on your car, or that tweet, or that Instagram pic, whatever it might be, we, we want to declare and let everybody know, this is my personal virtue, and if, and if you're against it, you're wrong, I'm right. But I want you to see very clearly here, and Evan said this in his prayer, Nehemiah is not calling out this new society this new Israel to fight for justice because it's a good cause this is not cause driven like many of our societal fights are today Nehemiah says ought you not to walk in the fear of our God the fight for justice is rooted in fearing God what does it mean to fear God I think that's sometimes confusing to many of us I, Uh, Simply put, let me tell you what it's not. Fearing God is not living in slavish fear. It's not viewing God as some bully who's ready to drop the hammer on you. To fear God is to be in awe of God. It's to revere God because of his greatness, holiness, justice, his law giving. Nehemiah is rooting the fight for justice in God's character and in God's commands. The prophet Ezekiel, the century before Ezra Nehemiah, in Ezekiel 22, described to Israel that the exacting of interest, the making of unjust gain from your neighbor, was one of Jerusalem's most detestable practices. And here they are, a century later, repeating one of the offenses that led them into exile. Deuteronomy 23, 19, God's law says you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you and all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. God is a God of justice, and he commands justice. He cares deeply for the oppressed. As a church, as a new society, we seek social renewal because it's God's heart and it's God's command. Mercy and justice for individuals and systems. And we must remember that this call begins with God. It's rooted in Him. You know, when we're in a position to be a blessing to to somebody maybe who finds themselves in a bind that they can't get out of, and we have the means to help our brother, or our sister out of that bind, right? When there's a cry uh, out to God, and we, the people of God, ignore that cry, do you know what commandments we're, we're violating? We're violating the two greatest commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. We're going against the heart of God, and we're going against our neighbor's need. So Nehemiah calls out the assembly, And in verse 11, he calls them for specific action. He he says, return to them this very day their field, their orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money you've been exacting from them. And this assembly responds like any preacher would want their congregation to respond. Immediately they respond. And they say, we will restore and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah, verse 13, acts like an Old Testament prophet. He shakes out his garment and then he declares, let everyone who does not keep this promise be shaken out and emptied. And everybody said, amen. This is amazing. What God is doing in his people in this moment is amazing. The Israelites are convicted by God through Nehemiah's leadership to seek justice, justice and mercy for everyone. And it would cost those pursuing justice. It would cost them money. It would cost them what the things they've required as they give it back. But they would seek justice for those who are being oppressed. They would provide for those who are without. This is social renewal. This is the mission God's called us to be a part of because it's at his heart and it's what his kingdom is about. Let me press on you just for a little bit this morning. Walter Brueggemann makes the point that God's people here in Nehemiah had been lulled into conventional practices of extraction by participation in the dominant economy. That they had forgotten their identity as the people of God and therefore conformed to the patterns of this world. I think we can relate to that. The people of God, though, are to be this alternative society. We are called to be a society within a society that lives differently, declaring to the world in which we live the kingdom of God. Brueggemann, he calls for alternative economic action for the people of God. Alternative economic action. And so let me ask you a few questions. How do your financial practices differ from the world around you? If you're a Christian, how do your financial practices differ from the world in which we live? Secondly, do your financial dealings reflect a love for God and a caring for neighbor, or more, a selfish accumulation of wealth? Can I speak prophetically for a second here? Many of us need to quit pretending like we don't have influence like we can't make a difference, like all of us don't have levers we can pull, either with our resources, our power, our networks, to fight for the oppressed here in Durham and around the world. I'm not going to tell you what that looks like for you, but you should pray that God would give you a passion to fight for those who are experiencing oppression, that God would give you an ear to hear their cries. You might be here this morning and you're crying out. You're feeling oppressed. You might be here this morning and you need ears to hear the cry. You might be here this morning and you hear the cry and you've been angry and you're taking counsel with yourself and you have maybe been taking steps and you're praying about what new steps to take. No matter where you find yourself in this conversation of, of justice, let me remind us that God is the God of the oppressed. God cries for the oppressed. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And God hears your cry. You know, Rachel and I, we've got three boys, uh, almost seven, five, and one. It's never a dull moment in the Mason household. Uh, But it goes without fail that at some point in our day, we'll be doing something and we'll hear a boom, big thud, and all of a sudden, what? Somebody's screaming and crying, and it amazes me that every time Rachel knows exactly which child it is. I mean, a cry to me is like it kind of sounds like they're, they're just screaming. She knows which three of our boys it is. It's amazing. I mean, it's, if you've ever been in a group of people when there's a lot of kids and a lot of adults, and a, a child cries out, and the parent knows that's my child. They're, they know that's that's my child crying out. God, He knows your voice. God knows your cry, and he's doing something about it. Now You might be asking a question. It doesn't feel like he's doing something about it. It doesn't feel like Jesus is fixing the problem of oppression and injustice in our world. Well, in Jesus' first coming, he didn't fix it completely, and this was quite confusing to his disciples as well because they were waiting for King Jesus to bring the shakedown to the world and to establish his kingdom, but Instead, Jesus would die on a cross. He would enter the story of oppression and injustice. Jesus would become poor, and he would be crushed and crucified. And three days later, he would rise from the dead, declaring that he has overcome the world. And the first coming of Christ did not fix all of the injustices of our, of our world and in our society. The first coming of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, it secures that one day, someday he will come again and that kingdom will be complete. It will be fully visible. For when Christ comes the second and the final time, he will not be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He will not be one who does not open his mouth. He will come as an exalted king with righteous anger He will come to rid this world of injustice and oppression and all poverty and all violence. I heard a pastor tell the story of talking to a father of daughters after a church service one day. And this father came up to the pastor and they were talking and the father starts talking about how one of his adult daughters had just kind of been serial dating. You know, like just dating one guy after another. Going through boyfriends and he was trying to find Mr. Right. And the dad kind of confessed to the pastor, yeah, pastor, I'm concerned that that my daughter's, she's just waiting on some prince to ride in on a white horse to fix everything. And and as a dad, I I can imagine feeling like, I just want to encourage my daughter. You got to be a little bit more realistic. All right, this is the real world. Be a little bit more realistic. That's not going to happen. But this pastor in that moment, I thought responded uh, with uh, just poignancy By the grace of God, respond. I don't know if I would have responded this way. But the pastor said, you know what? I'm banking my whole eternity on that happening. See, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, it describes the second coming of Christ and that he is the prince of peace who comes riding on a white horse. And he will fix everything that is wrong in this world. And as Christians, we're banking our whole eternity on that happening. But until that day, as his people, as a new society, may we be people who hear the cries of the oppressed. We live as an alternative society, loving God, loving neighbor, seeking social renewal as his kingdom comes. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us, God, to hear the cry. Some of us don't want to hear the cry. We want to explain it away. We want to uh, say there's reasons for people crying out. And I pray, Lord, we would not so quickly do that. Give us tender hearts. Give us ears to hear. And, God, I pray that we would have Godward passion. Uh, give, Give us anger. Give us righteous anger to fight for justice in this world because it is your heart and it's your command. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is a city on a hill, declaring a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of justice to all. In your name we pray. Amen.